Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards support that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Hello, Eloise. I am so excited to spend a little bit of time with you. Uh, And for our listeners, um, my name is Wendy Mota. I am a program manager at Futures Without Violence. And today we have another exciting episode for The Pivot. Um, Like I said, I'm super excited to spend some time with Eloise Cepeda. And I am going to actually ask you uh, to introduce yourself for folks that don't know you. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Eloise Cepeda, and I live in Austin, Texas. Um, I am Indigenous and Latina. Um, I am a wife, a mom, a grandmother, um, and I am a beloved child of my um, parents, uh, Edward and Eloise Reyes, and I am just very, very thankful for their journey and the journey of my grandparents, my ancestors who displayed and modeled strength and the ability to be both a warrior and a healer in everything that they do. I am the senior manager for child welfare portfolio, collective impact at Mission Capital. And there I have the responsibility of bringing together, bridging relationships, um, using collective impact model between um, systems, folks, providers, multidisciplinary providers, community and parents to really co-design and transform um, the Texas child welfare system. Aside from that, I am the founder of Harmony One Restorative Justice. I am a practitioner um, and I have been doing that work since 2010. Um, And I started with the work of restorative justice and have moved into transformative justice and believe they work hand in hand. Had the opportunity to go out the curriculum for universities, um, national safety guides when COVID, when it spread and affected um, our world. Um, I have um, been able to be a part of transformative work um, within criminal and civil systems. Um, and then also community faith-based and again with parents um, and school systems, um, law enforcement, crisis providers, you name it. It's infused into everything that I do. So it's not something um, that you can clock in and out of, yeah. um, which yeah. I think is the real power of the work. 
Thank you so much, Eloise. I'm so impressed by your experience and excited that you're here to share some very meaningful insight um, for this very important discussion that we hope can shift and pivot a lot of practices across the nation. So today we're going to talk about just that, pivoting practices. And Eloise, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as you know, many organizations, local, statewide, national, at all levels, many, many folks included, um, understand equity to be different things. And I think, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a buzzword, but I feel like sometimes it's a buzzword. Like people, how do I say, just really kind of like tag along, for lack of a better term, to this um, this energy, this movement, and this ideal that things should be different. When we talk about equity, of course, we um, have, unfortunately, um, very alive, very real examples of how systems, institutions have caused more harm than good to Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks. And so today's conversation, um, or in today's conversation, our hope is that you can share some insight with us in terms of, you know, where can people start? How can they deepen the work? And maybe what can the future hold for, for folks, if that makes sense? So let's dive in. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with you, Wendy. I, I feel I have similar feelings about when it's buzzword and when it's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel it just depends on what side you're standing on, what side of the situation or the issue or the system yes. that you're standing on um, that determines your not only how you grasp the concept and the reality of equity but and how you process mm -hmm. it. And I do believe there are some some great people that want to see equity really infused into all processes. And then there are some that want to back and support equity because they don't want to be called racist. Right. Um, and then there are people that want equity because they have lacked access to resources right. and opportunities um, and then there are those that are that feel that equity is a negative thing and and what's wrong with the way things are now and feeling that that's going to take something from someone with privilege to uh -huh. give to someone without privilege. So that means that I have to lose something for you to gain something. And so uh -huh. then it can be perceived as a negative concept when all reality we're saying can we engage can we promote human-centered engagement so that everyone can benefit and and heal and grow and and thrive right that's yeah. if anything that's the buzzword now mm -hmm. is that equity equals thrive and then you know really unpacking like what does thrive mean does that mean that now i can function in my trauma and and hold a job mm -hmm. um you know so so really just unpacking what equity means to us is mm -hmm. important and then how we're measuring um the impacts of what we're doing to achieve equity love that love 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 that and it's like a very tangible picture illustration of of how 
like the ingredients that it should have. So thank you for that, uh, Eloise. So um, our first question for you today is about, or for rather, organizations, leaders, um, our other listeners that want to start shifting um, and pivoting from these traditional and mainstream approaches to working with children and families impacted by domestic violence. And very specifically, you know, when we think about like the service world and intervention and how things have been done for such a long time, isn't it wild that we're working on behalf of families and oftentimes we leave them out, you know, like they're not part of of the solution. So what would you say to these organizations and leaders that want to start shifting away from those harmful um, practices? Thank you. That's a great question. Um, to the organizations, um, nonprofits and orgs, businesses, institutions that are tuning in today, I hope that I captured your attention first off by giving all my accolades, right, that made me qualified to do this work to now say that I am a child adult survivor, right? And what happens when we reverse that? What happens when we introduce ourselves? This is systemic racism, right? This is a systemic barrier is then I'm seen as less than. As a survivor, I'm seen as broken. I'm seen as scorned. I'm seen as I still need to heal. I'm seen as all of these things. But what happens when we can really, as organizations and institutions, invest time and resources to support the healing and the growth and the ability to achieve one's goals, personal goals, whether it aligns with what you feel is best for that person or not, and then give them a voice. Like, can you mm-hmm. imagine, like, well, I'm going to give you a microphone and then mm-hmm. I'm going to turn it on, right? Because we can give the microphone yes. and never switch the power can button on. Can you imagine? Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> we've, we've seen this for two and a half years yeah. now, right? Like, yeah. we're on Zoom and I can talk away, but if I never, if I'm never unmuted or the host restricts the ability for me to unmute, then I you I won't right. ever be heard, right? I can be seen, I can be invited to the table, but I still won't be heard. And those spaces can be intimidating. As a child and adult survivor, I remember the the number one thing for me was the unknown. What is going to happen when I tell you my story? Can you handle my story? Mm-hmm. Can I trust you with my story? And we have seen over and over and over organizations and systems that unfortunately have caused more harm because of mandatory reporting um, laws and and obligations. And so people have now been choice to make a moral decision about how they're making this report. So my um, advice to organizations and to agencies is to evaluate your process, Mm -hmm. evaluate how you're inviting your, your clients, your community, your staff. If we're really being true to function and to respond according to data, if data is leading and community is leading and we are following, 
then we're really being true to the statistics and the data that say one in three have been harmed. One in yeah. four have been harmed. So when you have an organization of 50, we have to do that math there too, right? And we yeah. have to think That's about right. the survivor leaders that are on our staff. So what are our policies and our procedures that prohibit us from making this transformative change? And the, my second um, word of encouragement is is reshaping, rethinking, redesigning. Um, I'm. We've been reimagining for a couple of years now. It's time to move from reimagine to redesign. Uh-huh. Um, what our meeting spaces look like? Who's invited uh-huh. into um, trainings? Who's invited into meetings? And typically, it's top down. Um, when we can restructure that attendance or that invitation to include um, people with power being CEOs, executive leadership, board members, and so on to include middle management Uh and who is having to enforce those rules upon staff who are then having to enforce those policies as they're serving clients. So we're really looking at three layers of vertical support that needs support. Um, And no one can tell the story about what the need is better than the person on the ground, right? But usually they send an email, they forward their information, and then the manager takes it up, and then the manager takes it to the CEO, and the CEO takes it to the board. But what happens when we give voice to those that are, are... on the boots on the ground as well, the advocates, the case managers, the counselors, the um, community engagement specialists, the peer support specialists. What happens when we give voice um, to those people? Then we are one step closer to giving voice to the people we're serving and then taking it a step further. So it's making that transition internally first and then taking it a step further and, and inviting community and multidisciplinary providers to share space, creating that safe space, letting them co-design what that space, establishing values. When I'm creating a new space, I always open with values. I always um, create um, guiding principles. And my first question in a new group that is being developed is how have you been impacted by structural racism? We have to be able to see the real Mm -hmm. impacts of structural racism that every person has encountered. And you would be surprised. I had law enforcement officers tell me I have not received a promotion or I have been Mm -hmm. overlooked because I'm black, I'm brown. I, you know, I don't have, you know, the relationship with the chief that this person does and they do dinners and they should go on boat rides together. And so we're looking at um, systemic racism within systems, but also within communities and and um, and families and the nonprofits that serve these yeah. families and communities. I almost what a great answer. I almost feel like we can end the, <laughs> the podcast now. That was such a great blueprint, right? You talked about creating the space in a meaningful way, right? That literally, like we're always talking and saying and inviting. I loved your analogy on about the Zoom, by the way. Um, just because someone's in the room doesn't mean that they necessarily have the, the space, the actual privilege that we all have to speak and, and, and be heard. 
I love your idea of, you know, doing an internal assessment organization wise. So, and then, and then also this, it's almost like a caution, but also a warning and also a disclaimer. Like, listen, we've been reimagining for a while now. It's time to act and redesign. So thank you so much for that. What, what would you say to folks that have already started that are, you know, doing this amazing work that doing or, um, meaningful ways or finding meaningful ways to to connect with our, our most affected, uh, our families that are traditionally excluded and marginalized, how can they deepen the work in your opinion? And there's a part two to that question, but let's start there. For the organizations, the listeners who are part of organizations, lead an org or other business, and you've already invested time and effort don't get weary. It is hard work. This work has been, we're, we're not the, the creators of mm-hmm. this, of breaking racial divides and, and advocating for racial equity. This has been happening for decades and decades and decades before. So it's your turn to carry the torch. Yes. It's your turn to carry the torch. What legacy are you leaving behind? How are you impacting the lives that are influenced by your decisions, whether they're your staff or they're the people that you're serving? Um, and we all know that staff is going to move on to another org, right? Uh-huh. So not just worried about your reputation, uh, but but the impact um, towards racial equity is something that is critical and is valuable, but it's hard work. If I told you, create these, just revise your policies and everything will be okay. No way. You're probably <laughs> going to have a ton of people quit. That's right. You're going to have a ton of people who have problems and issues mm-hmm. with it. Um, so as long as you're doing the work to get their feedback, to get their buy-in, to co-design then you can move forward with a clear conscience. But if this work is done with the same white dominant um, structures of I am making the best decisions for you or for my org, then there's still more internal work to do. Um, And so I want to challenge both. I want to challenge you to continue the work. Doesn't matter how many trainings you've been to, how many books you've read. We still, even myself as a person of color, have to work daily to undo white supremacist habits. We've been conditioned since we could walk and talk how to obey, how to follow, how to, what good behavior looks like. Uh And so just rethinking your own conditioning. And also one of the major initiatives that we're trying to promote is to refrain from creating 1D or two people staff to do your diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. (laughs) Like, don't do that. Don't don't put that work and that responsibility on the shoulders of one person. It is the rest, all of our responsibility. If you can go back to your HR, revise job descriptions, infuse that to every single person's job description in your hiring processes 
Um, and then also, again, in your intake processes, revamping uh-huh. that, ask clients, how do you want to be, how do you want to identify? I'll never forget when I joined an organization and there was the standard checkbox, um, race checkbox. And this client says, I don't want to check any of these boxes. I'm not white. I'm not black. I'm not, you know, native. I'm not, I don't identify as any of these boxes. And I said, well, let's write on the bottom of this. I'm going to put a big X through this and let's write on the bottom of this, how you identify. And I'll never forget when I was told you have to check the white box. And I was like, but they don't want to check the white box. And so, you know, also rethinking, like we have revamped how people can identify within our own organization. And for example, people will use the term Latinx. Well, 92% of research says that the Hispanic community does not want to identify as Latinx. So we Oh my gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's just more modern day colonization and assimilation, right? Like since the days of colonization and slavery, people have been forced to assimilate. People were sent to walk better, talk better, look better, right? We've been we've been sent and and conditioned and dictated to by systems and institutions yes, about right. what is appropriate. And so for our org we used Latin A slash O slash A slash X. So you can you can select that with confidence to know that it's inclusive. So if we're really going to be real about inclusion, then how are we capturing our staff and our client and our community voice to be able to say, how do you want to be included in this? How, how can yeah. we, how can you walk away from this appointment feeling like you were not just heard, but you were seen uh-huh. and understood? I love this. I love everything you're saying, Eloise, because and, and it's, so true, so deep, so powerful, your statements, because I think also the other thing is that I even for organizations that have been doing the work, deepening it is it just takes you to a different place, right? So it's like you run the risk of tokenizing, you run the risk of so many different things. Like, and, and I feel like maybe that's its own episode, uh, the Latinx thing, because that's that's a hot topic for me anyways, you know, because I... I feel that the other issue with a lot of organization is, is that that default to tokenize, and sometimes it's not even intentional. Like, for example, I identify as Black. I'm a Latina, but I identify as Black. And so, you know, my experiences are different from someone else, even some another Black Latina, right? But you, you have an organization that's rendering services to a community. And it's, I think... I don't want to say easier, but sometimes they just take that one person. And and unfortunately, that person speaks for all for everyone. And that is not the case. Right. Like, I don't speak for another black woman or black woman that speaks Spanish or another black Latina or another Dominican woman. I speak for me and my experiences. So I think the onus, I one thousand percent agree with what you're saying and that the onus should fall on the organization to go in deeper. There's always opportunities to grow. So thank you for that. And I think, you know, in the same breath, I'm wondering as you're talking, what is the connection to funding? Traditionally, we've been, you know, basically dictated, told 
how to spend the money, which is also bananas to me because it's like, if we are truly in a place where we can do things differently, where we can pivot, where we can change, oftentimes, I I would say more often than not, that funding is going to be used differently. It's not going to, it's not a a one size fits all. We know that. Um, So what is your, what's your take on how funding restricted or, you know, different streams is related to this? How can, how can we increase meaningful community work and support for families um, using funding differently? Mm -hmm. Thank you, um, Wendy. That's, I'm, it's very important that we talk about funding and I love how you just ended with tokenism because that's a great transition, right? So whether it's an org who has identified an individual thinking that they're elevating their voice, right? Because it can be unintentional harm, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to yeah. elevate, I'm going to give my staff member opportunity to use her voice because she's black or brown, right? Mm-hmm. And so so it can be unintentional or it can be intentional, I am not a mind reader, don't want to be, I've got other work to do. (laughs) Now, when we think about funding, funding can also be that bigger form of tokenism, right? So if we go back to um, how and why nonprofits were created, Uh who created them, right? It was the, it was the wives, uh, it was white women who wanted to do a good work for people who had slaves who had just been freed and Uh needed support to find housing, food resources, clothing, jobs, right? So, so they needed help. So the poor black people, and I, and for those that are listening, I'm, I'm doing air quotes here. (laughs) For the poor, (laughs) quote, unquote, for the poor black people and brown people, but we were, we as brown community were almost invisible Uh um, during that time needed support. And so when we think about grant writing, we think about the language that's used poor communities at risk communities, um, under, um, represented communities, right? When we think about the language that we are using as we write grants we're really still pulling on someone's empathy and sympathy to give us money for this poor community that we're trying to serve, which still lands in that white dominant, white savior um, structure and model. And so we as people of color can also become black saviors, brown saviors, right? And we can also, because we've been conditioned in that uh, mentality for so long, we can we can replicate it. And so then we end up hurting our own people as well. Um, unintentional harm is just as impactful as intentional harm. And so if there are funders that are listening, um, recreating the grant applications, what you're asking for um, from that. community, allowing... Um, organizations to submit creative ideas that include human-centered engagement, which would then require more learning about intersectionalities and intersections, and then also room to create holistic 
um, support, non-traditional, right? Uh-huh. Again, that's undoing the white supremacist models of evidence-based that's curriculums, right. measurements and scales, uh-huh. and actually building something that will be sustainable. Every yes. single funder wants something that's sustainable, but they're not building it with the people who is going to keep that's, it sustainable. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy. And it takes us back to the original question about equity, right? right? If you're making decisions without the people impacted most, in that decision-making process, then you're not doing equity work. That's right. And so have you considered as funders, as mainstream funding organizations to invite communities and parents and organizations that are on the ground doing this work into spaces to learn about what it it is, right? Listening to the larger need and then responding and co-designing solutions to meet those needs. Yes. I want to say amen right now. I don't know why. I feel like you're just, you're hitting it right off the nail. And I think if you go directly to the communities, right, to the families, like, you know, unfortunately what we end up seeing is funders funding mainstream organization to then consult with someone from the community. And it's like, it's almost counterproductive. So I I like adore everything you're saying. Um, And I've seen funders give to organizations that already see receive an enormous amount of money and mm -hmm. are hesitant to give funds to grassroots organizations that have been in business for 10, 20 years. So they've proved they're not going anywhere and have been literally in a space where I heard a funder say well, do they know how to handle that much money? Wow. Um, And I'm like, (laughs) what resources can you build into this that would give them the staff to be able to manage the financial aspect of this, the managing of the money, the allocation of of resources, um, payroll, grant reporting, so we see that the or grassroots organizations that don't have grass that don't have grant writers on staff uh-huh. are left out of the process because they can't afford. They're busy giving money out of their own pockets to provide for someone's rent or to provide for groceries for family or medication for uh-huh. elderly. And we should be putting these dollars into the pockets of those that are doing the work on the ground. Because again, if we ask families, children, survivors, who they're calling in a time of help, they are not calling mainstream organizations. As a child and adult survivor, I've said this a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand more. Never once did I call an 800 number. Never once did I land in um, a shelter. And I had to go underground I was provided a safe haven by an underground community for two years because my life was on the line um, with my children. And so let's give the money to the people that are on the ground doing the work. I agree 100%. Thank you so much, Eloise. I guess my last question for us today is really, you know, you've shared so much of your expertise with us, so much knowledge, so many um, great points. How, what would you tell folks 
that are, you know, one or two actions. I know there's more that they can do, but what are one or two actions that organizations and folks can do or start doing immediately in terms of this conversation? Um, I would say first call to action would be to position yourself in spaces where you will be forced to learn. Um, And when I say forced, I'm not saying you don't have consent, you don't know what you're getting into, but that you know that it's going Uh to be hard. You know that it's going to be uncomfortable, Uh but you're willing to do it anyways. Um, Position yourself to be in in affinity groups, trainings, community conversations, staff conversations where you can take it in. It's hard to hear. It's hard to process information. I remember when I learned about myself, girl, I was like, what? I don't have no white supremacist habits. Like, I was so mad when I found out. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But we have to learn. And so regardless of your race, your ethnicity, your gender, any identifying unique elements about yourself, get into a space. Get into a space where you can learn, where you will be challenged and where you and where you are actually willing to walk away with something other than anger and frustration. Um, The second is advocate to co-design those shared spaces with staff, with community, with parents, Mm -hmm. with funders, with policymakers, advocate to share power, share leadership. And it sounds simple. um, And all I can, if I have to sum it up to one word, it's co-design. If you are creating something and you're like, wow, I did a great job. I'm going to go get their feedback. You didn't co-design. You designed <laughs> and you want them to sign off on it. That's what you did. Yeah. You did the same old, again, yeah. white supremacist habit, right? Yeah. And you have to think about the power dynamic and the power structure is does that person really have the ability to say, I don't like what you designed, right? So co-design, if you can eat, sleep, and drink that ideation and practice it at home, practice it with your kids, Um, practice it with your partner until you're ready to actually go into these spaces and be transparent. Let people know like, Hey, I'm showing up with no answers. I'm showing up willing to learn. I'm showing up. I don't know it all. I think the other burden that we have been forced to carry in leadership roles is the burden of knowing it all, the burden uh-huh. of having the all the ideas and where are we going and how are we going to get there? Well, I don't know. Let's map this out together. Together. Um, so, yeah, be, be willing to be transparent. Um, and that, again, will lead you back to human-centered engagement. Your staff, your community, and those that you serve will also see you as a human just as much as um, you will see them as a human. Eloise, I I feel like there's so much more we can talk about, uh, but I'm so grateful for this time. I feel like, you know, some of these episodes were like, we need a part two. This is definitely one that I would love a part two to. So I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for all the knowledge that you've shared. And I know for a fact that this is going to make a difference in so many, for so many. Thank you so much, Eloise. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for all the work that you do and keep these conversations happening. I know that you will. 
And for all the listeners that are out there, tune in. Tune in as often as you can. Do the work. We're cheering for you. We believe in you. You will make mistakes. Uh-huh. But get up, dust yourself off again. And, and do it. And do it. Just stay in it because too many people are let down by the people that walk away. And guess what? We don't get to walk away. We are people of color. We don't get to walk away. This is our life day in and day out. So we need your support. We need the allyship. We need the transformative changes um, so that we can see healthier communities and our children and grandchildren can benefit from a better world. Yes. Thank you, Eloise. And now for our last words, a poem by Elizabeth Acevedo titled Hair. My mother tells me to fix my hair. And by fix, she means straighten. She means whiten. But how do you fix this shipwrecked history of hair? The true meaning of stranded when trusses held tight like African cousins and ship bellies. Did they imagine that their great-grandchildren would look like us and would hate them how we do? Trying to find ways to erase them out of our skin, iron them out of our hair, this wild tangle of hair that strangles air. You call them wild curls. I call them breathing. Ancestors spiraling. Can't you see them in this wet hair that waves like hello? <laughs> they say Dominicans can do the best hair. I mean, they wash, set, flatten the spring in any lock. But what they mean is, we're the best at swallowing amnesia in a cup of morisoñando, die dreaming because we'd rather do that than live in this reality caught between orange juice and milk, between reflections of the sun and whiteness. What they mean is, why would you date a black man? What they mean is, a prieto cocolo? What they mean is, why would two oppressed people come together? It's two times the trouble. What they really mean is, have you thought of your daughter's hair? And I don't tell them that we love like sugarcane, brown skin, pale flesh, meshed in pure sweetness. The children of children of fields, our bodies curve into one another like an echo, and I let my curtain of curls blanket us from the world. How our children will be beautiful, of dust skin and diamond eyes, hair a reclamation. How I will break pride down their backs so from the moment they leave the womb, they will be born in love with themselves. Mama, that tells me to fix my hair. Mama tells me to fix my hair. And so many words remain unspoken because all I can reply is, you can't fix what was never broken. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E-P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.